It's TechBiter Worldwide with Bill Flynn. The latest on programs and policies, helpful hints, and a bit of occasional nonsense. All in more or less plain English. Podcast number 837 for the 23rd of June, 2023. This week, whether you need a huge camera with a lot of heavy and bulky lenses, just a smartphone, or something in between, depends on how you approach photography. Let's explore that. In short circuits, most new computers come with solid-state disk drives. If you have an older computer that you're not quite yet ready to retire, now would be a great time to upgrade the boot drive to an SSD. Beeper is a new approach to messaging, whether you use Messenger, iMessage, Twitter, or one of many other services. Beeper puts them all in one location. And 20 years ago, only on the website, scams are as old as the internet. In 2003, I was grumbling about scams of the day, an activity that has persisted for two decades now. Ask just about any new amateur photographer what the best camera is, and you'll probably hear words like Nikon, Canon, Hasselblad. Prime lenses, tripods, and sensor sizes will be described at length. But ask a more experienced photographer that question, and you might be told that the best camera in the world is the one you have in your hand. That's a lot of space between those two answers. No professional photographer would ever take just a smartphone camera to a wedding, but a photographer whose gear is destroyed when a truck hauling steel beams runs over it minutes before the wedding and who has to make do with a smartphone camera will probably produce memorable images for the couple. That, in fact, is the origin of the best camera in the world is the one in your hand. You use what you have because you'll capture an image with it. No image will be captured with no camera. Okay, that's kind of an extreme example. A friend who was preparing for a once-in-a-lifetime trip to Africa was trying to figure out what kind of camera to take. He didn't want the bulk and weight of a digital single-lens reflex, but he wanted something more than a point-and-shoot camera. Let's look at some background here. Around 1962 or 1963, I used the money I'd earned in a summer job to buy a Pentax H3V and the standard lens, 50 millimeters. Later, I added a 135 millimeter lens and an early electronic flash that always seemed to run out of power just when I needed it. I developed film and made prints at home. About 10 years later, I bought a Nikromat camera. Over the years, there were other Nikons and lenses. Then I bought an expensive digital camera in 1999. Expensive, yes, but it was mainly a point-and-shoot camera. By 2003, I had a Nikon D100, digital SLR, and I continued with Nikon until I switched to Canon sometime around 2010. I still have a Canon D80 and several lenses, but they rarely come out of the antique camera bag they're stored in. When I need a real camera these days, it's usually a small, light Sony RX100 Mark VI. It weighs about 11 ounces, and it has an 8x optical zoom. That's the 35mm film equivalent of 24 to 200mm. So it's a small, light camera with a moderate wide-angle to moderate telephoto lens. The sensor is a 1-inch CMOS device that produces a 20-megapixel image, 
5,472 pixels by 3,648. Following a spinal injury in 2022, I still walk with either a walker or a cane, so carrying even a small camera around is problematic. So most of the photos I take right now are with a Google Pixel 6 Pro that uses a tiny 1 over 1.31 inch sensor, and it produces 3,230 by 2,083 pixel images. Because the sensor is so very small, noise can be a problem. Few people would choose just to take a smartphone on vacation, but it would be adequate despite its limitations for some people. When film was king, I usually brought back 20 or 30 rolls of film from a week's vacation. It would be even worse today because digital images are free. The only cost is a bit of disk space when you return. But I'm told there are people who would visit the Eiffel Tower and take just a single picture. These are extremes, of course, and most people are somewhere between those who would take 500 pictures of the Eiffel Tower and those who would take just one. Where you are on the spectrum is an important consideration when choosing a camera. The other key consideration is the lens. Going on vacation with 50 pounds of cameras, lenses, flash units, and film isn't particularly appealing. Having a bunch of extra lenses can result in images that are technically better, but changing lenses is slow, and lugging all that weight around makes it seem more like work than a vacation. So maybe you're wondering what my friend did. Well, I'm going to call him Rick, and I'm going to do that because that's actually his name. He was looking for a bridge camera. That's one that has features of a single-lens reflex model and point-and-shoot model. Usually, these bridge cameras don't have interchangeable lenses, but many do offer built-in zoom lenses with a decent range. He was looking primarily at the Canon SX70 and the Panasonic FZ1000. He picked the Canon because of its astonishing zoom capabilities, despite its relatively low $600 price tag. It creates only 20 megabyte files, 5,184 by 2,912 pixel images, and it uses a 1 over 2.3 inch CMOS sensor. But that's sufficient for an absolutely spectacular 24 by 20 inch print, and few people would see any problems with even larger images. Rick's wife and friend will have their smartphones, and another friend will have a lot of gear. They'll come back with plenty of pictures. The SX70, I mentioned its zoom range, it has a 65 times zoom range, the 35 millimeter film equivalent of 21 to 1,365 millimeters. So when you're looking for a camera, start by thinking about how much weight and bulk you're comfortable with. Ponder the camera's zoom range, and then choose the model that fits your needs. And for you, that will be the best camera in the world. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation there are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat.
In short circuits, if you've been waiting for solid-state disk drives to become affordable, you have waited long enough. Two modifications make a computer faster, more memory and a solid-state disk drive. Computers once had floppy disks that actually flopped. Maybe you remember 8-inch disks, or 5.25-inch disks, or the 3.5-inch hard-shell non-floppy floppy disks. Earlier computers had no disk drives at all. In the 1980s, computers began to ship with huge 10-megabyte hard drives. Those things are about the size of half a shoebox. If your computer doesn't yet have a solid-state drive, you're spending too much time waiting for the computer. One and two terabyte drives are the most common sizes for notebook computers, and solid-state drives are manufactured in two primary form factors, one that exactly matches the 2.5-inch cases used for mechanical drives and a longer, thinner shape that's used in most portable computers. The smaller M2 drives are tiny, a little over three inches long, less than an inch wide, and about five hundredths of an inch thick. That compares to four inches by a little under three inches by a little over a quarter inch for the older two and a half inch seven millimeter SATA cases. Prices are about the same regardless of form factor. Crucial, SanDisk, Western Digital, and others manufacture SSDs in various sizes. Expect to pay around $50 for a one terabyte drive, $120 to $150 for a two terabyte drive. Prices will be higher or lower depending on the disk drive's performance rating. Replacing a hard drive is a relatively easy process, especially for desktop computers and even for most notebook computers. Notebook computers are more difficult, and the process may involve removing other components to get to the disk drive. Still, it's quite possible if you carefully follow instructional videos you'll find on YouTube. If you have an Apple computer, a Microsoft Surface, or nearly any other brand of tablet, or any device with no screws, forget it. That's a job for a technician who has the right tools, and maybe not even then because these devices are held together with close-fitting parts and glue. Disk drives bought direct from SanDisk and Crucial usually include installation instructions, and the manufacturer of the computer should have a downloadable manual that explains how to upgrade memory or disk components. Before replacing the drive, it's important to prepare it. Free and commercial disk cloning applications take care of that. The free version of Paragon's Hard Disk Manager is a good choice to clone the drive. You'll find a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Some disk manufacturers do include cloning software or offer it as an add-on at purchase time. And you'll also need a cable to connect the new drive to a USB port for the cloning operation. I recently received an email with the subject, after 119 days on the beeper waitlist, today is the day. Wow, what a long wait, but I think maybe it was worth it. Beeper is a free universal messaging app that lets users chat with anyone on chat networks such as WhatsApp, Telegram, Messenger, Signal, and more. It also makes iMessage available on Android and Windows devices. That's a plus if you know somebody who has an iPhone. This isn't going to be an in-depth review, just kind of a first look. 
It's still essentially a beta application, but it looks very promising. The free version offers a lot, and a planned paid version called Beeper Plus will add some features. The waitlist is long, but if you use more than one messaging service, and maybe even if you don't, signing up for the free version is a good idea. You'll find a link on the TechBiter Worldwide website. Just be prepared once you sign up to wait, perhaps for several months. Beeper puts all of your messaging apps in one location. I use standard SMS messaging on my phone, Facebook Messenger, and one daughter has an iPhone. iMessage doesn't really play very well with SMS. Beeper gives me access to Apple's messaging on both Windows computers and my Android phone. It's currently a little less successful with Messenger because it doesn't always display previews of images and links. That's probably coming, but it's one of the reasons Beeper's developers caution users not to install their regular apps. Not just yet, anyway, and maybe not at all ever, because some esoteric features of some applications aren't supported and probably never will be. Users of Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, Signal, Telegram, Slack, and Discord can link their accounts to Beeper, and Google Chat will be supported soon. Once you've set up accounts on one device, they're automatically included when you install Beeper on another device. When Beeper Plus launches, Beeper will still be free to use. The Plus version is expected to include features such as a larger chat history backup and access to multiple network connections, perhaps some other features too. The developers say that keeping Beeper as a free application means more people will feel comfortable sharing it with their friends, and the objective is that the optional paid subscriptions will earn enough money to run the app. 20 years ago on the TechBiter Worldwide website is free and always has been. This week, we look back to some of the scams of 2003. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide. I'm Bill Blinn. There's more on the website, techbiter.com, and if you have a question or a comment, use the contact link you'll find there. Stop by again next week for another session.